electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan, and we kick off the show tonight with some breaking news. We think around the debt ceiling talks, you are looking at a live shot of the White House, where any moment Speaker Kevin McCarthy could address the nation following his meeting with President Biden. The Democrats could also follow up on their own. Again, both sides may come out and address the media, or they may not. We just don't know. Either way, we've got about 10 days to reach a deal before the Treasury Department estimates that America risks default or is unable to pay many of its bills. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning of just that earlier today. Kayla Tausche joining us live from the White House with more on what we know and still what we don't. Well, Brian, that meeting between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy has been going on for nearly 90 minutes. It's expected to wrap soon. They reconvened for the first time in a week after shrinking the negotiating team to top aides, but they still ran into snags. Uh, tonight, the principals are back in All the right, room. Kayla, President Biden said the goal is to reach a deal both sides can bring uh, to voters. I felt we had Kayla, a yeah, productive uh, discussion. We don't have an agreement yet, but I, I did feel the discussion was productive in areas that we have differences of opinion. Uh, we're going to have the staffs continue to get back together and uh, work on base some of the things that we had talked about. So, Mr. Speaker, at this point, what are the biggest sticking points in the negotiation? And the president, he said that he's willing to cut spending, but he also wants to raise revenue as well. Are you willing to talk about that? No. Um, just to be clear why. When you talk about raising revenue, if you look at the 50-year average of America, how much money have we brought in by revenue? That would be roughly about 17% of GDP. Right now, we're bringing almost 20% of GDP in in revenue. Now, how many times has that happened in modern history? Only twice, in 1944 and in 2000. So you're bringing in more money and a higher percentage than any other time. Now, so why are we in such a problem? the expenditures, the amount of money government spends. So on a 50-year average, government normally spends about 21% of GDP. Right now with 22, after the Democrats took over, they're over 24% of GDP. So the problem is not revenue, the problem is spending. So if you want to know where our differences have been, it's always been the same place. I simply believe, like any household, like any business, like any state government, when you're this far out of whack, you have to spend less than you spent last year. That's why we talk about that going back um, to where we spent just five months ago. Put a cap in there, grow the economy, pull back money that hasn't been spent like COVID funds that have sat there for two years. Who thinks you should do that? Save the taxpayer money, grow the economy by cutting red tape, letting us build things again in America. So these are just a few things. The other thing is, how do we get people back into the workforce, right? So we're only talking about, in work requirements, able-bodied people who have no dependents. Should we borrow money from China to pay people who are able-bodied with no dependents to sit on the couch? I don't think so, because we have found every study, it takes people off 
poverty rolls and puts them into jobs. It gives them a sense of worth. They're able to buy a house. They're able to send their kids to college. It's a very positive American thing. Yes. Americans need to do anything to prepare for the potential of default. There are a lot of people worried about what could happen to their jobs, their savings, and so forth. Do Americans need to get ready for that? No, 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 no. Because the Republicans had passed a bill that raised the debt ceiling that's sitting in the Senate. You always have the ability to move that. There's always opportunity. Yes. Two questions. One, how would you describe the tone of the conversation tonight between you and the President? I think the tone tonight was better than any other time we've had discussions. Uh, I'll have um, Chairman Patrick McHenry come up and, and talk a little bit about that as well, but I felt it was productive because, look, we both know, we've walked through this for a long time, where are differences, we're explaining them, we're, we're giving a give and take of what we think would be best for moving the country forward. We still will have some philosophical differences, but I felt it was productive in that manner, in the manner in which we produced, and I think we were able to really focus on the areas that's different. Pat Patrick here has been in the meetings with the White House staff the whole time, and I, I think the meetings you have had have been professional and productive too, if you want to say. Look, we, we've had a variety of meetings at the at, at our level for the last... Uh, All right, we were listening to uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy there as well. We got Representative Patrick McHenry there. We're not going to take that. Uh, but let's go ahead and recap a little bit of what each part said. Speaker McCarthy coming out and saying that the tone of the conversation with the president was better than at any time in any other previous conversation, but there is still a large difference of opinion. And McCarthy noting that the main sticking point is actually about raising revenue. He laid out a saying, he said, over 50 years, the United States has basically spent or raised about 17% of GDP and that we are now about 20%. In other words, the federal government is raising more revenue via taxes. We're going to show you more on that, by the way, in our RBI later on. He also notes that the 50-year average for the United States on spending is about 21% of GDP, and we are now at 24%. Of GDP. He wants a cap on spending. He wants to claw back COVID funds as well. And Speaker McCarthy, in a rather tough note, saying, should we borrow money from China to have people sit on the couch that are otherwise able to work? Some strong language there. All right, let's bring back in Kayla Tausche. Kayla, apologize for having to, to interject. I'm sure you f further understand. Uh, it doesn't sound like we're that much closer to a deal. No, and the expectation, at least from the White House, was not that today's meeting would produce a deal, but at least it would get the two principals in the room, have a productive discussion and advance what has been discussed behind closed doors. I'm told the tone of the phone call between the two gentlemen yesterday was very positive and that they both agreed on the importance to get a deal by June 1st and to avoid a default at all costs. You heard the speaker there talking about revenue, as you mentioned, Brian. That's been a red line for Republicans since February. The speaker has said Republicans will not... Uh, raise taxes on Americans, and they will not raise the debt ceiling via a clean bill. Those have been the red lines all along. But the question is, what constitutes revenue, and can you call it by another name? To that end, I've learned from a source familiar with the negotiations this evening that one potential area of alignment is emerging, and that is the category of health savings, the payments that the government makes to private insurers, private drug companies, for things like Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Medicare Part B, Part D. Some of those programs might be on the table to either 
either audit or reform those programs to unlock what, by some estimates, would be hundreds of billions of dollars in savings for the government. Would you consider that revenue? Well, it depends on who you ask. But I'm told that it's something that Republicans have so far not been opposed to. It's something that was in President Biden's budget in early March and that the White House at least feels optimistic of that being one area of potential alignment where you could unlock a significant amount of revenue to further these discussions. More on that as we have it, but it's a significant development as there remains this very large division between the Democrats' position and the Republicans' position, and we're trying to figure out how they're going to bridge that gap, Brian. Yeah, and we, we're seeing some of the headlines here, Kayla, and again, I don't want to put you on the spot. I couldn't hear a lot of what was being said. They're talking about these health savings. Do you have any idea what they may be talking about? Would that be a Medicare or Medicaid or something else? Yeah, that's what I was just discussing, Brian. Yep. This possibility. I couldn't hear. I apologize. Yeah, all good. The possibility that the that the uh, negotiators could choose to reform or otherwise audit these plans, where there's a belief that the government is overpaying private insurers and drug companies. For instance, the president's own budget estimates that uh, by simply negotiating drug prices with Medicare directly, uh, that they could save up to $200 billion. The Congressional Budget Office believes that uh, simply reforming Medicare Advantage plans could save the government up to $400 billion. So that's real money that you're dealing with. And Republicans could potentially call it cost savings. Democrats could call it revenue. So perhaps it's something that could make everyone happy. And at least for now, I'm told it's something that's on the table, Brian. All right, Kayla Tausche for the White House. Kayla, appreciate that. Thank you very much. All right, for more on this, let's bring in former Democratic Congressman of Ohio, Tim Ryan, Strategic Securities Managing Director, Courtney Rosenberger, and the Republican Congressman of Pennsylvania, Dan Muser. Thank you very much for joining us on last call. Congressman Muser, I'll go to you first. Uh, Speaker McCarthy making a point about revenue, making a point about spending, that, that we've never taken more mm-hmm. revenue in terms of tax rates in the last 50 years over the average, and nor has we spent more than this over the 50-year average as well. How far apart do you think the two sides really are? It doesn't sound like we're getting any closer. No, it doesn't, but we have to, Brian, as you as you well know. And Speaker McCarthy laid it out. It couldn't have been able, been more uh, empirical in where the numbers are from a revenue standpoint. Our revenues are up 8, 9, 10%. Uh, he, he went through where the GDP percentages were, and yet our spending is astronomical. Brian, when I got here four years and five months ago, our national debt was $19.6 trillion. Today, it's just about 32. Now, we had COVID. We had a once-in-a-century event. I voted for $4.5 trillion of spending, a- along with, uh, along with uh, 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 Tim Ryan, who's on with us. But when the Biden administration came in and we had, we had recoveries in motion, we spent another $5 trillion in excess. And the thing is this, the American people, they want us to raise the debt ceiling, but they also don't want to give the Democrats, a, the Biden administration, because there's a lot of Democrats who agree entirely, a blank check. And we're not going to give them a blank check. We're going to have some limits, some savings, mm-hmm. and some growth. And, and I guess what's confusing for, for people in the American public, and I, <laughs> myself included, uh, Congressman Ryan, is that are we talking about actual cuts or are we talking about capping the spending growth? So in other words, if you make 100,000 a year and then next year 110 and then 120, if I say, well, you're gonna make 105 next year and then 110 the year after that, am I cutting your income or am I just cutting what you expected to gain? I am confused about some of the language that they are using here. 
Yeah, I, I'm not in the negotiations, but I would assume it's it's reducing the growth. Um, then you try to, if you're going to save some money, get that underneath the inflation number. That's how you will eventually see some savings. Um, but I, I got to tell you, I mean, I just listening to McCarthy there and Patrick McHenry, uh, I feel a little bit more optimistic. I feel like they're they're really starting to get down to some brass tacks. I, I like the idea of uh, the, the health care savings because, you know, the, the health care system, especially it's about 50 percent of, of the spending in, in the federal government between Medicare and Medicaid. You know, those are some pretty big numbers. We got to move to a more preventative system. There's a ton of waste in the payment program. Mm. So I think that's that's some pretty good common ground that I think we can find. Um, and we got to remember, just to, just to keep the record straight here, you know, a lot of these guys uh, voted to, like McCarthy included, three times voted to increase the debt ceiling under President Trump. So now all of a sudden you're holding the line. I think people see through that. Two wars. Hey, but Congressman Ryan, Ryan President yeah. Biden voted against raising the debt ceiling in no, 2006, I, I, citing too much debt. We're at nine trillion. Now we're 31 trillion. I and I get it. My point is that there's a lot of posturing going on here. Yeah. Um, but but we have to remember, and we talked about this last last show I was on. We have two wars that were put on the credit card. The prescription drug bill was put on the credit card. Then the housing crisis, and then and then uh, and then what happened here with COVID. So there's a lot of a lot of blood on a lot of people's hands here when it comes to the federal budget and the huge tax cuts in the last few years. So we've got to bring in spending. There's no question. We just made these huge investments, which I think are strong. The chips bill, you know, in Ohio, we got the Intel factory. It's going to be a $20 billion. We're going to finally start making chips here. The infrastructure bill. We've needed an infrastructure bill for years. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. We're going to try to reindustrialize the country. So these were good investments, but now we got to figure out how to rein in spending. And I agree with them on that. And, it, you know, it's nice to hear the agreement there. Again, we, we, we are a bipartisan, nonpartisan, safe home <laughs> for everybody. And I love that. Courtney Rosenberger, I'm going to show you guys a wall. And these are the president. He tweeted this out himself. This is coming from the White House about how to sort of narrow the deficit, because the deficit, I still think, is the third highest of all time. He's estimating he, he wants to impose a billionaire minimum tax. Billionaires don't have a lot of income, so don't pay a lot of income tax. So that'd be, raise $400 billion. He wants to raise the top income tax rate back to 39.6 from 37. That would raise about $200 billion, again, over 10 years, so $20 billion a year. Tax stack buybacks, stock buybacks, raise taxes on corporations and impose a global minimum tax. Courtney, those numbers add up to about $2.6 trillion in new taxes. If the president gets everything he wants, what does that do to the U.S. economy and or the stock market? I think the most important point is the president is not going to get everything that he wants from that list or even close to everything that he wants from that list. We had been talking about potentially the possibility of Republicans um, being willing to negotiate on something like a buyback tax. But that's really the only thing that we see as a possibility. The biggest issue that we're thinking about when it comes to the market is pricing and austerity, those companies that are levered up to the federal government. If you actually look at healthcare companies, companies like healthcare facilities, life sciences, tools, um, managed care companies that have a large amount of contracts on Medicare and Medicaid, those were the companies that really underperformed in 2011. And if that's Kayla's reporting, that's back on the table, we'd be watching those as well. And we actually see more risk for the market potentially after the debt ceiling is increased because you have that austerity being priced in. And you also have Treasury going to reload the Treasury general account as well, which could take some of that liquidity out of the system. Is, is there so a Courtney? And I don't, don't go too far in the weeds here, please. Um, but 
Is there a risk that even if we get a deal, there's going to be some market volatility added because of the Treasury, the issuance? It has to do with banking liquidity, sort of funding and and greasing the wheels that run under the engine of the stock market. Absolutely. I mean, Treasury is going to be looking to add 500 to 600 billion dollars into that Treasury general account, depending on how they do it. That could suck a huge amount of liquidity from the market, potentially really making um, the situation for banks even more volatile, depending on, again, how Treasury does this. Um, And then you also have the issue of if we go to the brink, if we go to June 1st, do we get a debt downgrade off of process? Because in 2011, S&P downgraded the U.S. debt after the debt ceiling was lifted, and that led to the market going even lower. So that's also something that we're watching. The closer that we get to the brink, the closer or the higher the odds that we get a downgrade off the process here as well. All right, Congressman uh, Muser, we got uh, Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio as well and Courtney Rosenberger of Securitas Securities. Uh, Thank you all very much. Do appreciate it, guys. Thank you. It's been a fluid evening already. All right. As you can see there, uh, Patrick McHenry is still speaking. Kevin McCarthy was taking some questions. The Democrats, I don't know, maybe perhaps the president himself will come out. We simply... Do not know, of course, if the president or another high-ranking Democrat comes out, we will take that for you. Again, they continue to speak to the media. All right, up ahead. Maximum hope for Warner Brothers Discovery will ads be the savior for the new and improved streaming service launching tomorrow. Plus, another potential breakthrough in the gold rush around weight loss drugs. Should your insurer, though, be obligated to pay for it? And the AI-generated hoax that fooled the markets. Why you should prepare for more. Stick around. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. All right, it's time now for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, Disney began its third round of layoffs today. The cuts are estimated to impact over 2,500 jobs across the company. That according to a report from Deadline. This round of job cuts expected to be the last major way, for, at least for the time being. Next up, Paramount will be merging its streaming service with Showtime on June 27th. The freshly merged platform will come with a price hike because, of course, subscribers can expect to pay about $1 to $2 more per month Depending on their subscription tier, Showtime will be shutting down its standalone app at the end of the year. And more streaming starting tomorrow as HBO Max will rebrand simply as Max. The updated streaming platform will include existing programming from HBO Max and Discovery Plus. The new name and combined content is the result of last year's merger between Warner Media and Discovery, which is now known as Warner Brothers Discovery 
until it's known as something else. Similar to many streaming platforms, now Max will have multiple pricing plans with the lowest price point, including ads. Now, media giants have become desperate for streaming profits and are looking now to turn to the ad market to see some green. Just listen to how our parent company, NBC Universal, kicked off the upfront advertising season last week. Hey, everybody, it's me, Ted, and I got something I want to say about ads. So listen up. There ain't no denying the streamers are dying. And what did they need? They need ads. And the market seems to agree. Not only do streaming platforms need ads, they need a subscriber base that will support those ads. Now, remember, Netflix stock jumped last week following it after it announced its ad-supported offering at 5 million subs and 25% of new subscribers offered for that offering, accepted that offering, excuse me. And if you compare Netflix to other powerhouses of the streaming world, it is the only one seeing gains in the past month. And your next guest says demand for streaming could just be the start. The founder and CEO of web ad company Taboola, Adam Singolda joining us now. Adam, good to have you back on again. I'm, my mind, you know, I'm getting old. So it's like ads funded everything. Then we decided ads were going to fund nothing. Everybody will pay $8 a month and that's fine. But apparently now ads are the thing again. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I uh, thanks for having me again, Brian. I think, you know, the way I think about it is really advertising is becoming sort of the new West Village. It's the new pink. Every company that has significant reach to consumers wants to tap into this huge market. You know, you see Bob Iger of Disney saying ads are important. You're seeing Netflix now that 25% of subs, you know, choose ads. Elon Musk is hiring a superstar, Linda Iacarino, uh, to be the CEO. Even Instacart, Brian, Instacart, which supposedly is selling us bread and milk, just reported $750 million in ads. So the main question is not, is it happening? It's definitely happening. It's all about how do we make sure that the future is relevant, beautiful, because none of us wants more banners. You know, Brian, when was the last time you clicked on a banner? Uh, many, many years ago. So I think to me, it's not about- You mean on you know, purpose what, or accidentally, Adam? What are we talking about? I mean, I've, you click on something. <laughs> yeah, accidentally for sure. We've done, we've done that, you know, as we scroll, but none of us, you know, we're creeped out by bad advertising, but if it's beautiful and relevant, I think it's going to be fantastic for all of us. Well, yeah, okay, so let's, I'm not picking on HBO Max, by the way, but, uh, but HBO was HBO Go, the app. Then it was HBO Max. I understand then they bought Warner Brothers, so then it was Discovery Plus, uh, which is where I get my Shark, Shark Week fix, by the way, with me and my son, over here. Now they're merging it again. At some point, and, and by the way, Pete, you got Peacock over here. We had the NBC Sports app. I'm not going to separate us from this. There's, there's got to be some consumer confusion here. But isn't it the opposite? I think, you know, at the end of the day, how many subscriptions can we have? How many people can we pay? How many services can we be in touch with and have a relationship with? I think this is, this is you know, this is a natural progression towards kind of super apps, one system, one product, one payment system. You know, I think this is where it's going. We'll just start with, you know, uh, Paramount and Showtime. And I think it's good for consumers. It's good for advertisers to have consistency and scale. That's it's what, good for those services. That's what Apple did. If you're an Apple iCloud user, you were paying for Apple News. You're paying for Apple Music. You're paying maybe for Apple Arcade. They bundled it all together. Apple One, it's now $32.99 or whatever a month. You don't even think about it. But I don't know. You think there could be a, a time, Adam, where... 
I don't know if it's even be legal, by the way. Everybody gets together and says, hey, for 100 bucks a month, you get everything. Kind of sounds like cable. Yeah, I don't, know. I don't know if we'll go back to those days because I think there's such a different, um, you know, there's a product differentiation now that is offered through those apps that I don't know that we want to have some sort of a bundle that is a mega bundle. But I do think we need to have less than 10 people we pay. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of um, advantage for consumers to have this level of consistency. So who cares about, you know, um, more, more names, less names? It's more about uh, the product experience for consumers. Adam, a real pleasure to get you on again. I mean, it's a changing landscape, the medium. We love talking about the media as well. Adam, appreciate it. Have a great night. See you soon. All right, still ahead. The booming demand for weight loss drugs. America needs it, but should the insurance companies or the government pay the bill? Plus, the truth around taxes. We are going to show you the stunning jump in just how much D.C. is really taking in of your money. You won't believe the numbers, and they're coming up. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Now to another story, and there are other stories making major headlines today. A new player may soon enter the weight loss drug market. A pill made by Pfizer could be as effective as the red-hot drug Ozempic at helping people lose weight. The drug is called Danugliprot. <sighs> Need a new name. And it resulted in significant weight loss after patients took the pill for four months. Medications like Ozempic, Wegovy, and Manjaro are all injectables. This is a pill. Shares of Pfizer surged 5% on that news today. Now, the proliferation of these drugs could help mitigate America's obesity crisis. And if you think it is not a crisis, listen to this. The CDC says the annual medical cost of obesity in America is nearly $200 billion. Medical costs for obese adults were $1,861 more on average per person. Those medications, though, do provide some hope. But for many who are seeking out these drugs, whether it's medically necessary or not, they're having trouble, perhaps, getting their employer-sponsored health plans to pay for them. Among employers with fewer than 5,000 employees, less than 20% of plans cover the drugs, which could range between $900 and $1,300 per month. For employers with over 5,000 employees, less than half cover them. So at the end of the day, who should be on the hook for the cost of these weight loss drugs? Insurance companies or the people using there are some potentially abusing these drugs. Joining us now is Dr. Deborah Horn of the University of Texas Houston Medical Center. She is the medical director for the UT Center of Obesity Medicine and Metabolic Performance. Dr. Horn, thank you very much for joining us. Is it unfair to call obesity a, quote, crisis? I know the media overuses that word all the time. I freely admit it. Uh, thank you for having me, Brian. I don't think it's unfair at all. We have um, excellent modeling data that shows us that uh, America has about a 41% obesity rate uh, currently. And in the next seven years, by 2030, we expect that to be 50% of the nation. 
81% of the nation has either overweight or obesity, and about 50% of people in the nation qualify for these medications now. Okay, and I want to be clear. So there's three drugs that we've talked about, and they're not all, first off, they're not all weight loss drugs, nor are they approved for weight loss. In fact, Ozempic, it's approved for diabetes, I don't think for weight loss. WeGovy is approved for weight loss. Mount Jaro, apparently close to being approved for diabetes, and this Pfizer pill is, is, is got a ways to go. I mean, we're not even close to even talking about it yet. If and when they are approved for quote-unquote weight loss, Dr. Horn, who should pay? I mean, I think the first thing we have to look at is this is disease. And so it's obesity treatment, not weight loss treatment. Um, just like diabetes or hypertension, we pay for our insurance and our insurance pays for us to have treatment for diabetes or high blood pressure or cardiovascular disease. And obesity should be no different. Our insurance should pay for the cost of the medication. We have a little dichotomy here, though, in that you will see if you look carefully at these medications, Ozempic and Wagovi are the same medication in uh, two different brand names for two different diseases, but the cost differential is about 44%. It costs 44% more to get Wagovi for obesity, uh, which is the same medication yep. as it does Qu to get quickly, Ozempic do for Dr. Horn, I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to, I apologize for interrupting and trying to give you the hook, but I got to ask you this. The CDC actually has a wonderful animated, it's not wonderful, but an animated map. Anybody can Google it and find it and shows the percentage of obesity soaring. Forty years ago, the rate of obesity was basically not zero, but it was not close. Now there's two states where 51 percent of the population is technically obese. In your mind and all your studies, do we have a, a, a reason why obesity has just soared in the last 20 years? The things that we think contribute um, come down to sort of five areas. So if genetics is the disease and biology and physiology hang on that framework of genetics and then behavioral choices, which include access to appropriate food, uh, not having to work so many jobs that you can't be physically active, but also environmental structures. We think all of those things come into play and it's very complex and there's not one single thing that's gonna fix it but like other diseases, we have great pharmacotherapies that now can get the disease under control. Dr. Deborah Horn, University of Texas Medical System. Uh, we appreciate it, doctor. It's an important, by the way, it's a huge economic story as well. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. All right. On deck, your daily RBI asks a simple question. Where are all your tax dollars going? If you don't think the government is collecting a lot of money, we're going to show you some stunning tax Next. Time now for your daily RBI. And today, let's get random but interesting on taxes. And while we know it is probably your least favorite topic, this take might actually pique your interest because it's doing something that you do not hear very much from the power brokers in D.C., and that is that the federal government has been swimming in money recently. Your money. Look at this. This is from the Treasury. This Treasury chart shows federal revenue trends from 2015 until last year. It's an inflation-adjusted chart, meaning it's all in today's dollars. And for about five years, it hummed along at about $4 trillion per year being taken in mostly from taxes. But when the pandemic hit and trillions in stimulus flowed out, tax collection rolled in in a big way. Treasury reports federal revenues were $4.9 trillion last year, up from just about $3.9 trillion in 2019. So federal revenues, 
your tax money went up by nearly a full trillion dollars in just four years. And revenue collection also rose from 16% of total economic output to 20%. Consider that. Washington never even collected a trillion dollars total in any year before 1997. Now we are jumping by a trillion dollars in a couple of years in just three years. All right, a lot of numbers here. I get it. But the bottom line is that the federal government has never had so much money. So two random but important questions here, I think, are first, why the apparent panic in D.C. over money right now? Well, it's probably because this year's Treasury is taking in less than it took in last year. In fact, we're down $300 billion from the same period of last year, probably because the stock market didn't do well last year. Income taxes, by the way, make up 52% of all federal revenues. But maybe the bigger and nonpartisan question around all this is, where is all the money going? D.C. coffers were never more full last year, and yet here we are talking about running out of money if we hit the debt ceiling in less than two weeks. And that maybe should be a question of both parties. Both parties should be asking because it is your money. Random, but hopefully interesting. All right. In the meantime, there's been a lot of fast-moving developments this evening on the debt ceiling standoff. If you are just catching up, here's where things stand. No deal has been reached in the latest meeting between President Biden and Kevin McCarthy. But the House Speaker insists the meeting was, quote, productive. I did feel the discussion was productive in areas that we have differences of opinion. Uh, we're going to have the staffs continue to get back together and uh, work on base some of the things that we had talked about. Now, in the meantime, a short time ago, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries made an explicit plea to his Republican colleagues. We will need five or six Republicans who claim that they will never allow a default to happen to join us. And if they did so, uh, we can find a way out of this manufactured crisis. Now, taking a look at how futures are reacting to tonight's developments there, we are a little bit in the green. By the way, Nasdaq's up five of the past six days, up 21% this year. The market's not acting like there's some great threat of a debt default. Either way, could both sides reach a deal before the Treasury estimates the nation's risk for default or is unable to pay many of its bills? For more on this, spring in California Congressman Ro Khanna. Congressman Khanna, great to have you back on the program again. I am... I. Civ Pro 101, I've, I've, it was long ago. I'm confused. Hakeem Jeffries is saying that we need a few House Republicans to come over to change this, but hasn't the House already passed a debt ceiling lift bill? They've passed a conditional bill. What we want to do is just say, in America, we pay our debts. There are 212 House Democrats who've said that, and if we had six other Republicans say, let's pay our bills, and then we can get on with figuring out how to reduce the deficits, that would solve this. It's one easy way of solving it. But what, what does that mean, passed it with conditions? I mean, if nothing happens, would this bill raise the debt ceiling, or it just wouldn't be enacted? Where does it stand sort of in the procedural process? Well, first of all, they don't have the votes in the Senate, so the House bill would be dead on arrival in the Senate. They couldn't get the 60 votes. Uh, you could, in my view, through the Senate, get a clean debt ceiling increase. That basically means what past Congresses have authorized, instructed, demanded that the president spend, he should spend. And this Congress then can figure out what we want to do to reduce 
the extraordinary spending. And two places we can start is the 60 Minutes report last night of the outrageous price gouging defense contractors. Defense is over 50 percent of discretionary budget. And we can look at the extraordinary costs in our healthcare system, prescription drug costs, costs hospital facility fees. Let's start there. Yeah, I don't think that should be a bipartisan issue, Congress. But I mean, we, we've well it's well reported that there may be a hundred billion per year in waste, fraud and abuse in Medicare. In other words, it's not about taking medical care away from vets or grandma. It's we shouldn't be shipping it over to maybe Russian hackers who have used somebody's identity. We all saw the Defense Department stuff. I tweeted about that as well. That could add up to maybe even a couple hundred billion a year, which I think is part of the sticking point between the two sides. How come that very rational, nonpartisan conversation is not being held, at least on camera? Well, I think it can be held if we pay our bills. Now, people say, well, if we pay our bills and, and have this clean debt ceiling increase, how will we know that politicians in Washington are going to be true to their word and actually reduce the deficit? Here's the great thing. Just like it's people's money, people get to vote. And if the Democrats don't make good on reducing the spending on waste, fraud, and abuse, they can vote us all out in two years. They can vote the president out. So I have faith in the American public. I just don't think we should be linking reducing the deficit to paying our bills. Is there a, you, you heard my setup, my random, my RBI random, but interesting point. I mean, and, and is there an acknowledgement among sort of more centrist Democrats, I think like yourself, which is that, you know what? Uh, <laughs> We probably have a spending problem, but we also we have a revenue problem, but we also have a spending problem. We're, we're now spending 24 percent of GDP. The historical average is 21 percent. We're raising 20 percent of GDP. Historical average over 50 years is 17 percent as well. I mean, where is the money going, Congressman? Well, just to be clear, I'm a progressive Democrat, but I thought your report was very interesting. I make three points on it. First, it shows you need to be pro-growth in this country. If you have product, production, entrepreneurship, innovation, you end up increasing tax revenue. Second, we still are a low tax nation compared to Europe and the OECD. We're one of the lowest tax nations, and that's just important to put it into context. But third, we do need to look at where we can cut spending. Two places, in my view, are uh, the extraordinary healthcare costs, and we're at 20% almost of GDP, and defense costs that are going to defense contractors that are not uh, that really aren't making us safer. I think let's have a bipartisan group of looking at where there's waste, where there's fraud, and start reducing spending there. We are a lower cost. I want to push back a little bit, Congressman, respectfully. We are a lower cost or sure. lower tax nation compared to OECD, but that, look what they get for their money. I think that a constituent, a wealthy constituent in your, in your area is at 37%, not all of it, let's call it a 26% average effective tax rate. Add another 12% for Medicare. Add another 8% effective for California because you got to average out the income. You're at 40% of your income is being taken by either the state or the federal government. And yet we're not getting free college. We're not getting free health care. The wine's expensive. At least in France, the wine is cheap. <laughs> well, look, you're not going to get an argument with me about the importance of free health care or free college. But let's not undersell the United States of America. I mean, the world got vaccines because of our innovation. We're defending Ukraine because of our strength. We gave the world GPS. We gave the world the internet. Uh, America's response to COVID in a bipartisan way was the most uh, best response in the world. Now you could say we overshot perhaps and overheated the economy, 
But there are a lot of things that the American government gets right. I do agree, though, that we've got to do better for uh, ordinary working class Americans. That's been the challenge. Yeah, I think in your point at the top, Congressman, we'll let you go, is just kind of mind your own house with all that waste, fraud and abuse, hundreds of billions. It feels like both sides could just basically come together, find that money that both sides want. They can claim spending cuts. You can claim that we were still funding this and that. And guess what? The, the, the Russian hacker would be the only one potentially who, who lost. Congressman Rokana, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, you're very welcome. And we're sure to be keeping all of you updated on any breaking developments. Again, if we get more headlines on the debt ceiling talks, we didn't get a lot. If we get more, we will bring them to you. Coming up, the AI-generated hoax that fooled the markets. Okay, look at that picture. Look at that building in the background. And that photograph wiped out billions from the stock market in seconds. And it's fake. We'll tell you about it coming up. All right, welcome back and look at this. Not long after the markets opened this morning, a picture, a disturbing picture and claim suddenly appeared on Twitter. It showed what looked like an explosion, stating it occurred near the Pentagon. In just moments, the image started a mini panic ricocheting across Twitter and social media. It was picked up and circulated by closely followed and legitimate accounts. It was also amplified by some not very trustworthy accounts like the Russian government backed RT did not take very long for this scary scene to hit the markets. When it went around, the market immediately fell, sold off a bit. But the thing is, it's all fake. It was a complete hoax. And once authorities began making clear the explosion was not real, the markets bounced back. The most disturbing maybe part about all this, it wasn't sophisticated. A simple AI-generated fake image sparked about a $100 billion stock market move. And this is nothing compared to the sophisticated AI manipulation and deep fake technology that is already on the market, some of which we've showed you in the past couple of weeks. Well, today we may have witnessed one of the first drops in the feared flood of AI-created disinformation to come. So joining us once again, Ben Coleman, CEO of Reality Defender, specialized in detecting AI deep fakes. Um, you've been looking at the photograph. Ben, I mean, it was quick. It, authorities said it's not real. Markets came back. But man... Even with kind of a almost like a childlike rendering using AI, we could sell off the stock market. What is that telling to you? You're absolutely right, Brian. I mean, this is only the smallest effect that can only grow. The problem with this is that the platforms, they do nothing. The technology exists today. We can solve it. We identified this immediately. You know, the platforms or social media or news, they don't do anything because they're not required to do anything by regulators. So what we're seeing today is only a small example of what is to come as this grows in complexity. And to your point, this is not even very complex. No, it's not. And of course, we can get into the debate about what social media companies are going to be you know, liable for. But again, they'll say they're not liable for anything. It's just, we're just the platform. We don't we don't supply it. Is there any way that that regular folks that are watching the show, anything they can look at in a photograph like that and immediately go, you know what? I think that's fake. The challenge is oftentimes they can't, but this one was very, very simple. So on our side, we look at a few different things. The image, the smoke, the road, they look way too smooth. The railing across the middle, it's also not very consistent. It appears to be floating on the sidewalks in a few areas. And the column of smoke, again, is overly smooth. 
compared to the Pentagon in the background. So again, to the untrained eye, it looks real. To our eye, it looked fake. And with our software, we were able to identify this fake with over 99% confidence. Wow, some good tips. Now that I look at it, I look what you're seeing, Ben, I'm like, yeah, he's right. But when it went around, people hit sell first, and then they thought about it later. Ben Coleman, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. All right, coming up, it is Make It Monday, and we're going to talk about turning old schools into new hard cash. All right, another tomorrow's news tonight. Look at Yelp shares. Yelp stock is up seven. That's right. Yelp is up 17 percent. According to The Wall Street Journal, it is being pressed to explore a sale of itself by one of its major investors. Again, Yelp up 17 percent on the push, apparently, of an investor for a sale. It is time for our Make It Monday series, where every Monday we're going to spotlight some amazing entrepreneurs across America chasing their dreams to make it on their own. Tonight, we meet a trio who bought an abandoned high school in Homestead, Pennsylvania, kind of near Pittsburgh, for $100,000 and converted it into 31 rental apartments. Take a look. Welcome to Bowtie High in Homestead, Pennsylvania. We bought an abandoned high school for $100,000 and converted it into 31 apartment units. Before we bought the building, the school was vacant for about 10 years. And we were thinking a WeWork space, a concert hall, beer garden, no, no shortage of ideas on what to do with the space. But after seeking you know, counsel and advice, we realized that residential is the best path forward for this building. I was made aware that the high school is for sale from a local individual. I live in this area and they know I'm involved in real estate. So the building was brought to me off market. Originally they were asking $225,000. I was able to get them down to $100,000. We started renting out the units at Bowtie in October 2021 before we had the building completely finished. And it took us about six months to lease up the building. Welcome to the one bedroom, one bath, 750 square foot apartment. We have quartz countertops, we have white subway tile. A one bedroom apartment rents for about 1400 a month and a two bedroom rents for 1600 a month. Probably the most dramatic feature of Bowtie High this is the original auditorium. We restored this space pretty much from ruin. We split all of the profits and the expenses based on our proportional share in the project. Renovating Bowtie High has made a big impact on many people in the community, and myself included. I live in this area, so I'm invested in this area, not only financially, but from the aspect of I live here and I want the area to continue to improve. Very cool. And Dan Spanovich joining us now with more. Dan, uh, wow. I mean, the, the place looked like a wreck to be. I mean, it was like the ceiling was coming down. How much did it cost you to renovate this? And I, if you tell us, are you able to make any money on this? It, it, it was a disaster, Brian. It, we, <laughs> we spent about three and a quarter million dollars on the renovation. Um, it's been a huge success, though, because we were able to get the building so cheaply. A lot of these buildings, they, they essentially... If you don't get them for, for free, it, it's hard to make these things work. But because it's a school, you were also eligible for tax credits because the reality is some of these structures are, are pretty awesome looking. It's in everybody's interest to not let buildings like that continue to rot, I would imagine. No, 100%. And, you know, we with this project, we were able to get 
federal historic tax credits and state tax credits. We weren't banking on those, but in the end, those came through. And, you know, those were a huge cherry on top with, for this investment. So any more in the works, Dan? So we're doing, we're doing one actually right across, you know, all the profits from this were sort of plowing into the building across the street. We're just about to open that one up June 1st. And uh, the next stop is a, a monastery that we're doing that is north of the city. Very quickly, what was the, we got about 30 seconds. What was the, what was the st- extent of your real estate knowledge prior to this deal and what did you learn? So yeah, we've done a bunch of these conversions before, but you know, the biggest thing that we learned is don't be fooled when they look sort of ready to go or when you don't think there's going to be much work because these things are monster projects, Brian. Yeah, when I saw the hole in the ceiling, I thought that is a big deal. But hey, congrats to you and your partners. It looks amazing. You can shoot hoops in your own living room. Dan, thank you very exactly. much. All right, everybody. All right, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. That is your last call for tonight. We will see you as always tomorrow. Shark Tank is next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.